Hi, everyone. Welcome to HashMap on Tap. Thank you for listening to the show today. It's Kelly, and I've also got Preetpal on the show today. Joining me again, Preetpal, we're going to be talking a little Teradata to Snowflake. Welcome back to the show. What are you drinking? Hey, Kelly. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm back. You know, this time I'm drinking what, you know, there's uh, high up in the mountains uh, of India, there's a region called Kashmir, very, very beautiful region. It's it's called, uh, it's probably called heaven on earth or whatever. Uh, it compares very well to Switzerland. And they have this, uh, they have their own special green tea and it's called a kava. It's spelled as Q-A-W-A-H. And it's, it's a very beautiful drink with a infusion of saffron and others so that's what i'm drinking it's it's supposed to be great antioxidants the same thing you hear about green tea but a little bit more uh their version of it right yeah no it sounds great I, i'm doing the same thing my my wife uh, ashley continues to encourage me to drink uh, more green tea as opposed to coffee so i'm doing i think i may have done this one on the show before i got the sun goddess matcha tea it's these uh, sticks uh, kind of like a little powder you dump them in and i've got this large mug here that i actually went two sticks and put a little vanilla in there and i've been doing that just about every afternoon kind of nursing that through the whole afternoon i think it'll definitely make it through the show uh i don't know probably 24 28 ounces worth of uh, tea there so <laughs> just got to keep it hot for that long all right, Preepal, let's dive in. Uh, so on the show before, you and I have talked about a lot of topics. We've talked about migrating from SAPBW, Hadoop, Oracle Exadata, Natiza, and we're going to tackle another appliance today that has been used in the industry for a long time, Teradata. Probably the most long-lived appliance in the industry, about a 40-year history. Started out in the late 70s. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but... Uh, you know, going back, you know, we, we see all this venture funding today. They got a funding round, very first funding round, probably before funding was even cool back in 1980. So $2.5 million, $2 million round then. And I think kicked things off with their first system shipped to uh, one of the largest banks in the U.S., Wells Fargo, and just have, you know, really had a nice run, especially during the 90s, 2000s. You know, started making some shifts during the uh, 2010 decade when we uh, dove into big data land. They put out an Aster Big Data Analytics appliance that kind of combined up Hadoop and Teradata. Acquired a services company called Think Big, did a few other things there. And you've seen lately, if you followed Teradata, it's been an interesting company to follow over the years. Uh, they, a couple of years ago, started partnering with the major public clouds, GCP, AWS, and, uh, and Azure. And there are a lot of Teradata customers out there. They've done a great job in retail, but a lot of other industries as well. They had earnings a couple of weeks ago and you go, okay, you know, fairly, you know, a, a stable company, probably one that's not hitting a lot of growth, but actually they, they announced some pretty surprising earnings a couple of weeks ago. They did, they did really well. I know they'd put in a, uh, a new CEO had joined the company, uh, Steve McMillan, maybe, I don't know, a quarter or two ago. And he's, he's really helped them uh, move things along. So little history of Teradata, we see it a lot. Why don't we kick it off by talking about why customers are making the move, though, from Teradata? Why are they considering this move from Teradata to Snowflake? What, in your opinion, Prepal is driving that? So I think uh, two things, right? Um, firstly, uh, you know, in, in uh, Warren Buffet's language, right? Warren Buffet talks about this, right? If you have an investment position in any stock, right, you ensure that the stock has what they call it as a moat, right? And uh, believe it or not, right, 
I think Teradata is a classic example of a moat, right? Nobody could compete with them until, you know, about uh, when Netiza came about, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's what they've enjoyed. That's the entire thing. This is this is one real database which has worked over a period of time. You know, I, I had um, the fortune of working with Teradata when I used to work at AT&T. And, you know, I was, I was handling Oracle our rack and, and doing stuff with Oracle at the same time as Teradata. And boy, I mean, like, I still remember those days when 10 million records into uh, Oracle would, would take a few uh, few hours, right? And here it is, you know, Teradata just chunks along, right? And then- now that's, that's interesting. And when, going back to when you were working with Teradata at AT&T, at that point in time, just give me your off-the-cuff rate. How would you have rated the Teradata environment compared to an equal Oracle environment? You know, like zero to 10, Teradata rates this, Oracle rates that for, for those analytics-type workloads. Yeah, so for, for analytics, right? We're not yeah. talking transaction workloads because transaction workloads, you know, it screams Oracle. Oracle is was the best thing in the town. Uh, Teradata was the best thing. That's what I mean mm. by the right? There was no competition from anywhere for Teradata, right? Gold standard, it, gold standard. It, it, it didn't even like, you know, in today's world, if you don't like Snowflake, you can choose BigQuery or something else. There was there was nobody out there who Got can it. do what Teradata did, right? The only reason why people would not uh, buy Teradata is the cost, right? So people mm. used a lot of Oracle-based, so SQL Server-based, because they felt like, you know, data sizes are small. They're not looking for an enterprise strategy and all that. But to coming to your question, right? So, so why are people thinking about moving along, right? So... Uh, three things. Number one, it's uh, it's an appliance-based uh, concept, um, and uh, you know, whenever you're dealing with an appliance, you know, it becomes a almost like a premium real estate in an enterprise. I'll I'll give you one exhibit A, right? So there was this Fortune, uh, you know, top hospital company here in U.S. Um, yeah, can't disclose the name, but but up in Nashville, Tennessee, right? I mean. Number one problem, um, Teradata had premium as, as a premium asset. It was treated almost like equivalent of a mainframe. You know, every MIPS is a lot of dollars and you got to respect that. And then the capacity was obviously fixed. And, and it's it's definitely, it's it's the SAP of the olden days. This is not for your average Joshmo type organizations. You You really have to have uh, deep pockets to actually run a Teradata appliance in your environment, right? That was primarily the reason, and and we we have attempted, and yours truly, I actually, you know, I had the the good fortune of trying to take down a Teradata back, way back in 2012 with Hadoop, and I will say I I failed, right? There was something special about that. There was a customer in Kansas City I was working with, and I was trying to take down Teradata with Hadoop, and I there were 16-way table joins in um, Teradata just worked, right? Of course, you know, I'm pretty sure the DBAs had tuned that query and all of that fun stuff. But the equivalent of this was not really that performant on, on a Hadoop infrastructure, right? Yeah. So I think the, the reason is threefold, right? Fixed capacity, um, the cost to operate, and uh, the fixed capacity actually leads to another thing which happens quite often is is inability to onboard more use cases. No problem with tech. Tech is fantastic. You know, there is, I mean, Teradata for dollar for dollar, uh, not dollar for dollar, you know, use case for use case. Analytics wise, it's still a workhorse and it will do what it's supposed to do. So these are the three top reasons, cost, 
fixed capacity and inefficiency around enabling newer use cases faster. Yeah, no, I, I agree with those. And I, I think if I had to pick out two or three or four reasons as well, why customers are making the move, they they fall along those lines. You mentioned cost to operate. I would also throw in the change from consumption-based pricing to, um, or the change from capital-based pricing, CapEx-based pricing to consumption-based. Wow. I know Teradata's got some of that today. You can actually go down that path. But I think in general, when you think of Teradata, you think about big fixed cost. I've got to, I've got to plan this out. I've got to ensure that I've got enough capacity for the next three years. I've got to depreciate that over three years. I think uh, you talked about also, um, to a degree, some of the, you know, it not being a cloud platform. I think when you look at that ability to, again, maybe it's maybe it's perception today. Maybe there's a couple of uh, Teradata services, but in general, when I think about instant elasticity, scaling up and down on demand. I, that's not something I typically think of in a, in a traditional appliance. And you also mentioned uh, new use cases. Another spin on that to me would be a lot of new types of data sets and not a lot of new analytics workloads. I think, you know, previously you had a lot of on-prem sales, financial data that was going into uh, Teradata. I do reporting on that. I remember you and I worked with a client that that had a Hadoop platform. Uh, they couldn't do, they could not get any type of, um, you know, high concurrency from a query standpoint on that. So they would uh, put Teradata as really the query engine uh, back to Hadoop. And it, you know, all this was on-prem at the time. Today, though, I've got I've, I'm a little bit constrained by that because I've got a lot of other data sets that are coming in. We talk to marketing departments all the time that are using uh, predominantly cloud-based data sources, right? So I think for me, the fourth thing is just the overall perception that it's a traditional legacy architecture, not maybe not the most modern approach. So to me, that, those are some of the things that I'm seeing, that cost aspect at the at the top of the list. So I would agree with you. Yeah, but 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 one more word of caution, right? I mean, these guys, um, as they did with Aster, uh, which was their um, sort of Hadoop mm -hmm, offering, mm -hmm. the whole, you know, you talked about it, right? I mean, I think is Teradata is actually trying to pivot and go into cloud with with their other offering, right? So, so that that's happening, right? But you know, like you said, right? The first mover advantage is definitely with things like Snowflake, the BigQueries, the Redshift, right? But yeah. but I think you know, I think. If you if you ask me to from my vantage point to compare what is out there from an analytics perspective, I think it's Snowflake, BigQuery, which is sort of yeah. you know the two contenders in an analytics sense to anything which is legacy. Yeah, I mean, I think they're gonna there. It's going to hurt them to have to come from that very very traditional type of architectural approach and, and shift that to the cloud. I mean, we've seen the same challenges with Hadoop. We've seen some of the same challenges, even with the cloud data platforms that are out there that bringing that legacy baggage along. And, and there's no doubt that, that Teradata comes from an on-prem environment. Let, let's go into a little bit different topic. What would you say, Preet Paul, should go into the technical decision-making process when you're considering a migration from Teradata to Snowflake? Awesome. That this is a this is an excellent question, and I'll I'll go back to my experiences of of seeing a lot of Teradata environment, right? So one one thing which makes a lot of uh, you know a Teradata uh, migration to cloud, say for example into Snowflake, easier than some of the others, is this this is a common theme you will find around all Teradata uh, based environments. So so say you're pairing up Teradata with Informatica, 
for ETL engine or uh-huh. or any others, right? I would say 9.9 times out of 10, what you will encounter is, you know, there will be a use of Teradata utilities to interact with the database, right? So BTIG is very common. T-Pump, T-Pump, M-Load, Fast Export, these kind of utilities are very common because, you know, they are optimized for uh, the bulk type of operations Teradata likes to have, right? So that makes your sort of your ETL landscape a little bit more easier to deal with because, you know, let's say I see a lot of Informatica with Teradata, for example. So if if I have Teradata, Informatica with Teradata, you almost always see on the target side, you know, in Informatica calling out a, a shell script, which is doing some kind of a, a T-pump, M-load, fast export, or a BTIC kind of a, a thing, right? So that makes your life much more easier because now, you know, your 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 ETL infrastructure is sort of a scheduling wrapper on top of your, you know, utilities, which are uh, Teradata-based utilities. So, so that's that makes your life a little bit easier. But as far as um, the the engine, the the engine called Teradata, I think, you know, I'll, I'll point out a few things which are very, very important. I think the topmost thing for me is remember one thing and respect one thing about Teradata. It is one of the databases which is probably does a fantastic job at a 16-way SQL join, right? Table join. So if you have if you have a major query with a fact table and 15 dimension tables with a lot of this bang, if then else calculations thrown into it, that's where you have to be very careful with some of those queries as you offload them into say a snowflake. Now, what what my experience has been is when you try to offload some of those queries in Snowflake, you know, out of the box, they don't work. I mean, they, they don't, they just go there and, and fail. But, you know, when you start looking at the uh, explain plans and everything on the Snowflake side, you can make it work, right? So, but, you know, the good news is it's not, it's not that every query written on Teradata is going to be a 16-way table join. I think it's about 5% of the, the SQL portfolio, which I see out there, right? And uh, embedded in a BTIC scripts. And, and to, typically what I typically see um, in, the, in, in the landscape is, even from an ETL perspective, whenever, whenever somebody sees, says uh, a 16-way table join, they actually decompose it into a 10-table-based approach where they take two table join and produce a 10-table, then produce another 10-table, and then finally they load it, right? So those kind of things will be encountered by you from from that perspective. Uh, other things are, I think Teradata has uh, a lot of, um, you know, so so Teradata, you know, has some of the other features from a technical perspective, such as yeah. indexes. Yeah, let me, before you go um, into which, that. For me, example, if you went to, to went into Snowflake, you know, would not have an equivalent construct. But the question is, do you really need it, right? Yeah. So the thing is, right, on the Snowflake side, it has taken a very fundamentally a different approach where they do, uh, partition pre-pruning based on having a heat map of what resides where from each column perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, if you have very large tables coming out of Teradata, you know, running into billions of records, you know, you have a clustering option on the Snowflake side as well, right? So some of those solutions do exist, which are there. So, so to your question, you know, around uh, the technical aspects of mm-hmm. Uh, taking data, sorry, uh, migrating a snow uh, a Teradata environment to cloud. Here is here is my synopsis, right? So systems which are feeding Snowflake through some kind of an ETL tapestry will be mostly file-based mechanisms. So that's relatively easy to solve. 
um, you know, that portfolio could easily be managed with, um, you know, going native uh, source system where, you know, you can replace the file-based methodology with whole bunch of tooling which is available out there depending on the type of source systems you're dealing with. You know, we, we talk about that a lot. We we mentioned things like Matillion, Fivetran for out-of-the-box experience, right? I mean, good news is that you'll not find a lot of Salesforce integration or Salesforce data going into Teradata. Even if it does, I would say that that whole architecture will definitely be streamlined and, and simplified if you if you went to something like Snowflake because you know you'll use five trans and materials and those kind of things. As far as change data capture is concerned, you know the batchy architecture can be replaced with some of the options we 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 have copious amount of literature on. The transformation piece, most of the times it will be Informatica coupled up with BTEC kind of an approach. Uh, that BTEC approach can actually be migrated over into cloud. Of course, uh, you have all the aspects of ANSI SQL from row level security. UDFs, UDTs, you know, ANSI SQL constructs, data types. In, in, in Teradata, you have data types like intervals, uh, which are not out of the box supported, for example, in Snowflake. So you got to take care of that. Performance of that is, 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 is something you have to take care of. That's where the, the technical complexity for doing these kind of projects will come about. But again, I'll repeat the good news is the good news is you are going to see these as aberrations or except, uh, exceptions and not as the norm right for for yeah. non things you know you'll see mostly queries will be standard ANSI sql and, and 80 90 percent of your thing will be uh migrated in that sense yeah i mean i think prepaul what you're describing probably is is not too much different from what we see migrating from any uh, system or appliance or environment. I mean, you're going to have hopefully, you know, 60 or 70% relatively straightforward. And you're going to have those outliers that, you know, you got to do some work on. And like you said, you may have that 5% that you got to do a lot of work on. Some of that 5%, certainly we want to, we want to make sure that those more complex operations and requirements are even still there, right? Maybe that's some tech debt that we can, you know, just eliminate as we go forward. But, you know, you're never going to, you know, you're just not going to have that perfect one-to-one -one match uh, by any means. I think to uh, your point also that uh, I would agree with you, we're not seeing a lot of cloud-based data sources today, at least with the customers that we're working with going into Teradata. So uh, you may, if you're not quite ready to make a move to Teradata, you potentially could even start with Snowflake in a cloud data uh, platform type environment with something like uh, marketing data sets. You know, take your uh, Google Analytics, your Salesforce, your Marketo, Twitter, those types of things uh, to help maybe make paid social, paid search type decisions. So there's, I think there's a lot of options there, but um, Going back into uh, Teradata a little bit more, again, you're talking about a very different architecture moving to uh, something something very new, cloud-based, SaaS-based, without a lot of the, the decision-making or workload management issues and all the collection you got to do. And I remember we talked uh, about Oracle and, and all the things you got to do as an ops DBA or apps DBA uh, to make that work. Dig into a little bit more for me some of the compare and contrast. I guess if I'm if I'm operating Teradata or I'm making uh, you know technical decisions around my tech, uh, Teradata environment to optimize it versus what I would do in Snowflake. I'm thinking capacity planning, workload management, those types of things. 
so yeah i mean this is this is interesting right because I'll, i'll i'll go back to i think the year was 2016 right and i'm talking about this particular uh, um, customer up now up, up in nashville right so in the middle of the night i i submitted some fast export queries to extract some data out and and, and put it into another system right and for purpose of analytics right so i went to bed around 11 11 in the night hoping that all those queries will be okay uh, i woke up at 5:30 to to check on what's the status of those queries uh, lo and behold you know that the db had already killed those queries at 3 am right oh. so why did he, why did he kill the queries because you know normally in these like fixed asset com- compute capacity type infrastructure the middle of the night is reserved for heavy duty etl operations so yeah. that 8 am of the next day starts you know it's open for business from an from a consumption perspective you know bi perspective and then why i mean wait a minute why right so so that's that's number one for me right i mean now in the new environment with snowflake you know i can i can spin up if if i don't want contention or noisy neighbor problem to feed into my pi consumption layer i would rather isolate the pi consumption piece over and say hey you go tableau users micro strategy users what have you they they have their own reserved warehouse instance they are going at it and then i have a totally different infrastructure for doing my etl stuff right so that uh, that that was one one thing about capacity planning right i mean the dbas nothing new there i mean like it's the same story in netiza it's the same story in mainframe right you have dbas and the dbas basically govern these resources like it's uh, it's it's an asset in downtown manhattan and you know you, you got to you know it's 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 so so precious that it cannot be uh, multitasked in that sense right so so that's that's definitely something which i see quite often and frankly you know you know all this fixed capacity models what they really do is they slow down your decision making process from a business community perspective right because you know the implicit thing which is hiding somewhere in this whole type of arrangement is uh, think about if you wanted to run 24 different projects you know one guy wants to add a column on an item table for an additional feature he or she wants for a new channel that business is trying to create right and another guy is trying to bring in a new data source you know the amount of time the it waste in capacity planning and figuring out you know if adding another column and bringing another 100 users or adding 500 more etl jobs is going to cause an issue or not or you know negotiate negotiating a uh, appliance size with teradata is concerned yeah all that is gone man i mean like all that is out of the window you know hey you 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 pay as you go kind of a model and you can seemingly keep your capacity elastic as much as you want point 1 point 2 is you know like i said right what typically happens in analytics or data warehouse land is there is heavy duty operation somewhere in the middle of the night and then uh, the next day the doors open uh, for reporting two things happen because of this number one the the ceo the ceo the cfo is looking at stale data they're not they, they get reporting as of previous day right and two is if you look at the compute capacity of the appliance it has been bought with that max capacity at in mind that max capacity you know whether it's the day it's like you you bought yourself a 20 bedroom mansion but 
you know, only people only come to sleep at night, right? And then it's pretty much not occupied during the entire day, right? Only during night people come and sleep and they go away, right? And then if if you are a smarter smart businessman, you'll ask yourself, wait a minute, man, can I not rent these room out in the morning, right? And make some money. But it's a fixed capacity model and it yep. has been the capacity has been built for that, right? So two things, right? One is the architectures are very batchy. The architectures don't support real time, you know, hey, by the hour movement of stuff. Mm-hmm. I no, no, nowadays it's 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 but not normal for CEOs, CFOs to ask for things. Like say you're a retailer, right? Don't you want real time staffing plans for how the how how number of people are showing up at eleven AM in the morning or don't you want to fill in a big commodities order because somebody showed up at 9 a.m. and and do real-time adjustment. So these are, you know, it's but not, you know, as businesses become more real-time, you know, you want analytics to be real-time as well, right? That's going to be harder in that sense. And then the other thing is the fixed capacity model, you know, I just explained. Why why buy a car which you're not going to use at least for 70% of the time? No, I, I agree with all those, but I mean, I also look at it and I say, okay, I, I I may need that that Ferrari at certain times of the month. So one of the things I think that you have to do, especially for if you're migrating Teradata, you do have to think about those peak times. If I'm if I'm moving to Snowflake, yes, I have a ton of flexibility from a workload management perspective to create another virtual warehouse. But maybe based on my Teradata workloads and the SLAs that I've got, I've got to ensure that this process or this thing completes in a certain period of time. That will drive some design. And so I think a lot of times we talk about, you know, don't you don't necessarily need to put a ton of effort into the design. I think in this case, if you're running a large Teradata uh, workload, you probably are because you're going to want to, again, talk a lot about balancing SLAs with cost. Uh, cost may go out the window a little bit if I've got to deliver at or better what I've been delivering on that Teradata side. And certainly I can do that with Snowflake. Uh, and then I can you know, leverage some of those auto suspend, auto resume type capabilities to ensure that uh, my costs aren't getting out of control. But to me, there's, there's some design that you're going to want to put into that. And again, maybe it's more around that 5 to 10% max capacity that you run your Teradata to at, at end of month or end of quarter processing on reporting. Yeah, but still the cost is not going to be humongous. I'll tell you that, right? I mean, remember one more thing you got to understand about all these data warehousing approaches with facts and dimensions and, you know, crystallized data models expressed as a data vault or a star schema or some kind of whatever. They're highly, highly um, crystallized form of your data. So you you don't expect, you know, petabyte scale data and that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, data will probably be in that, say 30 terabyte to say 200 300 terabyte range and you know that's that's sort of you know the storage is cheaper so the compute cost will not be that exorbitant so so month end closings and whatnot where you know these mips on these teradatas of the world become a really expensive the, those things actually go out of the window because hey for two days if i end up spending thousand two thousand maybe ten thousand dollars more you know what's the big deal right i mean it's still it still trumps the the um, the overall cost at which I bought that appliance uh, from that perspective. One more thing, I mean, since you were saying all of those things, something which came up to my mind is that there was this this uh, there was this there is this company here in in town in Atlanta, and what I noticed when I was working with them, another Informatica, Teradata type job, is the the ETL guys 
had um, put in logic uh, for uh, capacity management in the ETL framework, meaning you you had special code written up to ensure that only 10 jobs run in parallel at any given point of time. It cannot be 20, it cannot be 100, it has to be 10 or less than 10. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in, in this cloud-based model, you know, those those things go out of the window, right? I mean, you can pretty much, one is noisy neighbor problem, you know, one of the things that EBS are doing with from a capacity planning perspective, those things go out of the window if you actually, in cloud, um, have a special warehouse for uh, the analytics, like the, the BI guys, and then UTL is a different infrastructure. You don't have to worry about those. And then you can, you can uh, throttle the UTL not from the number of jobs you submit, but number of the size of the the warehouse on that side. You say, yeah, man, I'm fine that this ETL workload runs for 12 hours. If I really wanted to run in six hours, I'll, I'll increase the size of my warehouse and shrink it whenever I need to, right? So those some of those other things. What I'm trying to tell you here is that with this kind of a thing, from a technical perspective, the, the amount of coding you would have to do to manage all these other artifacts or assets around it, that also reduces tremendously. Okay. Okay. Right. No, that's good. And I know you you talk to clients a lot about uh, the 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 difference between executing kind of this one time uh, historical migration for Teradata versus, and you talked about earlier, uh, hooking up to those source systems. When you were uh, your previous role, you talked about AT and T. How how many uh, was it? A pretty good number of source systems that were feeding that Teradata instance. Yeah, I think you know. Again, I'm not. I'm not. Um, you know, I'm not. Uh, you know, violating any NDAs here. It was public knowledge. You know, we, many we are, years ago too, Preepal. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's many many years ago, right? I mean, I'm talking 2006, right? Yeah. I don't know if those systems exist. I think they exist, but awesome. so they, we had we had this called uh, BID, you know, Business Intelligence Data Warehouse, right? So we call it BIDW, right? And um, you know, yeah, pretty much the entire company was feeding data to it. Right, so you had so many systems, but but even Teradata, they would not put in your your billing data. Sorry, the the call records and all that into Teradata. No, 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 it's it's cost prohibitive. So everybody was kind of feeding into mm-hmm. it. The good news is, right, um, you don't have to worry so much from a Teradata perspective because you know all loads into Teradata are basically file based, right? So you you have basically got T pump and M load to load data into it. And then you make a you make a, a choice of if you are dealing with really bulky data, like you want to download like 300 GB of data out of the database, you go with something like fast export. And um, if you don't want fast export, you know um, you probably are looking at smaller data set sizes, and that's where BTA kind of things start working out. So with these four utilities, you kind of interact with the database from a um, data transformation perspective, right? So although you had Informaticas of the world and data stages of the world, but nobody really went out to Informatica like the way, um, it's pretty much a flat file based architecture for interacting with the database, right? So from a source system perspective, um, you know, Teradata as a system with its Informaticas of the world, it still sits a little bit more decoupled, right? So if I were to take this data replication strategy in the new world, I can pretty much be assured that the the data which is getting loaded into Teradata is going to be some semantic of flat file. So I can replicate that flat file into a 
internal stage or an external stage for snowflake and and boom get it there so all i need is a framework to actually replicate the files over right so, so that that that's the that that makes the job easier one two is this database is unlike oracle or sql server where you're scratching your head and saying, wait you know what happens if uh, 300 gb of data needs to be exported out well this database has been designed for 300 gb of data so so fast exports is absolutely um, a great way to take the data out of out of uh, their data fast exports can give you the file in in formats you seek it can organize the file in the format you seek and then you can take it further for downstream processing into snowflake right uh, so that's typically the way you get the data out from a historical migration perspective and then as far as pointing repointing the source systems which are feeding into teradata you normally are going to see you know some kind of an etl infrastructure for that you know and that etl it becomes more of an etl infrastructure problem rather than a teradata problem versus your other oracle and sql server type of uh, databases so uh, long story short uh, and by the way you know there are plenty of utilities in fact teradata itself gives you so many open source utilities you go on github you'll find plenty of utilities to actually uh, do a parameterized fast export of data from a particular table to be into a flat file which can then be gzipped and sent over to cloud on a uh, azure blob or an s3 bucket for later on consumption into uh, a a, tem a staging table into for example snowflake right so that that piece is kind of taken care of and then what is what is cool about all of this is right that the real time replication pieces which is your forward looking requirements right your change data capture from redo log mining stuff or your sap into the integration um, you know all of that piece there is plethora of choice of technology and tools which you can leverage for replicating data from the source systems to a, a staging directory in uh, in in the cloud right or a staging location right staging location could be a kafka topic it could be a blob store or a a, a staging table within snowflake itself right so that's not so much as a as a bigger problem for us um, the, the other thing you have to keep in mind is so teradata is very feature rich from a data type perspective right so for one is you definitely have to worry about character set encoding right there are data types in teradata like var graphic like varbyte like blob blob json um, like interval like period right these are some of the data types in in teradata and these data types don't have an equivalent on the snowflake side so you might have to as you extract the flat file you load it into a even a staging table in Snowflake, you might want to think about having a utility to convert the interval data type into something else, or, or you know, I mean, people typically solve the interval data type by having um, a UDF on the Snowflake side to give you the interval, right? But you can, you know, easily invoke a ETL procedure to actually calculate the interval yeah. and put it there. So I hear you saying be be prepared for some transformations on those data types that Snowflake does not support to get those into a usable format. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Hey, what about uh, so been running Teradata for the last twenty years? Uh, the the team's got a lot of Teradata skills. We've done a lot of training. We know how to run this thing in our sleep. Those skills, that training, how does that translate into the Snowflake world? Because again, Snowflake's doing a lot of the 
pretty much all of the backend infrastructure for you. Um, the skills, both from a, I'll call it an administration standpoint, then also the skills required from a consumption standpoint, how do those kind of compare and contrast moving from one to the other people? So, so I'll give the answer at two different levels, right? So one is, uh, you know, if you are, if you're pretty much SQL comfy type person, it should be a relatively straightforward thing, but I'll give you the longer answer, which I'm really want everybody to pay attention more to is remember, Kelly, you keep talking about the seven S's mm -hmm. and, and, uh, two of those S's is simple and speedy, mm -hmm. right? simple and speedy right so now what's going to happen in cloud is you you pretty much have three types of patterns emerge today today in cloud there are three types of patterns which i'm observing right so one pattern is i call it the scholarly pattern the scholarly pattern is definitely not about simple it's not uh, it may be speedy but it's not definitely not spread simple so this is where the scholarly patterns are you and and you have a reason for doing that don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not trying to critique that approach you have a reason you may be having a data scientist you may be wanting to do a real time thing where uh real time integ interrogation of a stream as the data is moving through various transformation layers of your engine you don't want to let the data go into the database and then do you analytics on top of it maybe you're doing in stream stuff but i call it the scholarly pattern you know one of the patterns is you actually have something like data breaks where it's structured streaming construct, you know, and Snowflake integrate with each other, right? Definitely not simple, um, but very powerful. Do you want that in the in that context of a scholarly pattern? I call it the scholarly pattern. Well, you know, you you be careful about what your current organization, which is a Teradata based BTEC, T-Pump, M-Load, Informatica type people or data stage type people be prepared in um, in educating them more about these newer patterns right which is um, you know going back to my hadoop days you know i think you have to invest a lot from a change management perspective on that particular pattern the second pattern uh, which is uh, i call it the widget pattern widget pattern is you know you have your your fivetrans your metillions not so much as fivetran but mostly like metillions the informatica clouds the talent clouds right so you're trying to take this whole thing um, from on-prem to cloud, right? Remember what I said about on-prem, it's a lot of BTIC scripts, your T-Pump, M-Load, you know, doesn't matter what ETL tool you have, you definitely have this in your infrastructure. Guess what? There is no one-to-one -one equivalent of a BTIC script in a talent job or an Informatica job or a Matillion job in cloud. So you'll have to invest a little bit more uh, in that sense, it's going to be widgety thing. The other other thing you have to remember about the widgety piece is when people play with widgets, they lose sight of the temporal location where the compute is running. What I mean by that is, you, you, remember you said previously that you know you want to do push down into Snowflake, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times when you don't have like a lot of you know you know emancipate or like a lot of like people who are not thinking about cloud in the modern way they think about cloud as a as a fixed asset almost like an on-prem i've got machines and i'm going to run this thing and yeah. code, you know and, and there is no wires and whatnot i mean on-prem you don't think about those things in cloud you have to think about those things when you write a piece of code you need to understand where this code is going to run where the data is going to get pulled the widgety pattern from your two kpis right simple speedy it is simple it's definitely widgety it makes your life much more productive it is speedy as well 
from a uh, uh, from a development cost and development timeline and having these informatica guys be talent guys tomorrow right so absolutely it will happen right so that's not an issue but you got to watch out for cost right yeah. the cost will uh, uh, seep in the third pattern the third pattern which you know is kind of emerging as the more the modern pattern is the data ops pattern right so the data ops pattern is things like dbt um, you know are emerging on the scene so they basically if you notice what they're doing is they, they're just making these command line shell scripty btake type t pump and intermixing of these you know shell script based approaches little bit more elegant and available for modern data ops with integration into infrastructure as code and linear tracking and check in check out features and automatability and testing and composability of a framework with observability thrown on top of it this is the third pattern now the beauty of this third pattern is it is it's definitely going to be speedy it's going to be cost effective and um, you know simple i would reserve my judgment the reason i reserve my judgment it is simple because it's still the lingua franca is still sql and it's not too far away from let's say a btech type philosophy but it does require a little bit shift in how you think about constructing a dbt pipeline versus how you think about constructing a btech pipeline right so that is the third pattern i see all these three patterns which are emerging you got to be careful in what you're going to do and this actually these decisions will percolate into how you treat your existing staff base into the new world right if you feel like you want uh, a modern data engineering platform enabling data science and deep learning prepare for it with like the scholar pattern i call it if you feel like you know you want to increase productivity and therefore you're going to use a lot of widgets uh plan for a small team for the code reviews and performance optimization which will result in cost optimization and if you are planning for uh the third pattern which is the modern data ops pattern and in that pattern you know just make sure you spend a little bit upfront time with the team in educating them about here are the principles of modern data ops and here are the, some of the enterprise patterns which i'm trying to cover with this whole Now that is uh, that is a very detailed answer. I love it. Scholarly pattern, widgety pattern, and the data ops. And I think what what I pulled from that too, if I'm currently running, operating, maintaining, involved in a Teradata environment, yes, I'm going to have to learn some new skills. Uh, but there are a lot of things that translate over, and probably it's going to improve my. I think I'll call it my personal brand as I move to that. a uh, cloud-based environment with snowflake. So, I don't think anything to to say you're going to have to go all the way back to scratch to to learn uh, a lot of opportunity there it sounds like uh, to me. Hey, let me wrap it up with you Preepal some great advice, great tips. Any last things, any last tips or suggestions you could give someone that's considering today moving whether it be a small Teradata environment or a very large Teradata state to snowflake that you haven't already mentioned? um well you know I, like i said you know this this ton of things to cover over there you know i can pretty much spend 3 4 hours just talking about sql um and joins and explain plans and query optimization stuff right so so all of that is uh, you know i don't want to spend some time on that let me let me my message is a little more high level yeah. i think what i would like to give as a as a parting thought is um you know teradata has um maturity it's got that uh, you know enterprise maturity and all that 
plan for some of those things. You know, I think, for example, I'll mention the security piece, right? The security piece is Teradata has built-in row-level security features, right? And the way they do it is very different than how Snowflake does it, right? Um, so, you know, plan for some of those things. Um, you know, don't don't try to uh, tweak the data models so much because, you know, if you if you start tweaking the data models which are available to you in Teradata over into Snowflake, you know, I think your your project end date will be questionable, right? I mean, that's that's a big thing I would like to tell you. And then, um, you know, map your consumers um, as well before you start, uh, you know, piecemealing your projects and don't don't attempt a big bang. Um, you know, do it in chunks. Do it in chunks by and prioritize. Um, a certain line of business or a pain point, you know, your, your strategic objectives first, and then you retire a piece out of their data over into cloud. These are my three things. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think we talked about it a lot, but uh, working backwards from those outcomes, those strategic objectives, the things that you're looking to do and deliver to the business, I think you'll find a lot of opportunities out there as you start looking to um, not only hit some of that speed and simplicity aspects that you talk about, but obviously uh, the the saving side of things too. Preepal, really, really enjoyed it as always. Thanks for joining the show today. Thank you so much, Kelly. I hope this is uh, valuable for others. Look, you know, there's, these are, each of these migrations is a universe in itself, right? So, you know, one hour may not be enough. So we'll probably, probably we should continue these conversations. I, I think we owe a HANA-based conversation as well. We, we do, yeah. Now, this was great. I always enjoy sharing a green tea with you. Big thank you to everybody that listened in today. And please uh, subscribe to the show, uh, any of the major podcast channels, and visit us at hashmapinc.com. Send us any feedback or comments. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you soon on another episode here. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.